Lowry on the way. Good! Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your lifelong Cavs fan host, voice of Fox Sports Radio, Bob Schmidt, at Fear the Fro pod Twitter. And thank you for joining me on what will be a fairly brief podcast on a weekend, a Sunday midday pod. But I did not want the Detroit Pistons game to go unaddressed as we head into a very big week of Cleveland Cavalier basketball taking on the Boston Celtics in the conclusion of the regular season series tomorrow after a very disappointing loss last week in which Donovan Mitchell was basically a one-man show. The third quarter got away from us and some hot outside shooting, 40 points from Tatum, a big game from Al Horford. Well, we all know how that went, but tomorrow we have the chance to take advantage of a scheduling benefit to the Cavs, which is that this same Celtics team takes on the Knicks Later today, a game of big importance to us as Cavs fans. The Cavs, a game and a half up on the Knicks as we presently speak. A Knicks team which is red hot. They've won eight games in a row. They've won 10 of their last 11. And in that stretch, they have put defeats to the Philadelphia 76ers, the Brooklyn Nets twice, the Atlanta Hawks, the Boston Celtics, the Miami Heat, the New Orleans Pelicans. So it's not as if they've beat all garbage squads. They've had some impressive victories in there and they've been playing some incredible basketball. But this pod is not about the Knicks. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you've seen I already am gearing up for overconfident Knicks fans who will tell me about how the Cavs, they've lost two of three to the Knicks this season. One of which, by the way, came on an uncalled foul from Isaiah Hartenstein on a game-tying Donovan Mitchell drive. But that's neither here nor there. This is not the pod to litigate the legitimacy of the New York Knicks. I respect that squad. I think they're a very good team. I don't think we should take anyone lightly, though. And that includes the Detroit Pistons, who, by all accounts, the Cavaliers may have started a bit slow. Shots were not falling, especially shots that we normally would expect to fall from Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. We did not shoot well at all in the first quarter. But despite a slow start, we got... What we needed from the bench, second half started to pull away, third quarter, unbelievable display of shooting by the Cleveland Cavaliers, and in the end, a 24-point victory. Now, it is a stat which they showed on the broadcast, which I thought was pretty impressive. The Cavaliers lead the NBA in 20-point victories with 10. They lead the NBA in 15-point victories with 15, and they lead the NBA in 10-point victories or more with 28. Despite any feelings we may have that the Cavaliers have let teams get back into games, I've felt that somewhat during the season, and we saw that evidenced with how we started. Cavs go down 6-4. They let a couple offensive rebounds go to Marvin Bagley, and then they rip off a 10-0 run. And yet, at the end of the first quarter, the Cavs led by just three points. So yes, we're a team that has runs, but we're also a team that is defeating the squads which we need to defeat. Just look at the Cavs' record right now against teams in the NBA. There are 11 teams which they have not lost to, and that includes the Bulls, the Hornets, the Lakers, the Magic, the Pistons, 
the Rockets, the Suns, who were without Booker, but still, the Trailblazers, the Wizards, teams that everybody acknowledges the Cavs should defeat those teams, and they have. Now, a couple of those squads, the Hornets, for example, we've only played them one time. We'll see them twice more before the end of the season. We'll see the Magic twice more before the end of the season. The Cavs have a chance to take these last 16 games and push over that 50-win threshold. Now, it's not going to be easy. The Cavs sit at 40 wins. That means they have to win 10 of their final 16. But certainly, Vegas thinks that they will finish above 50 wins. They've got them projected to finish with 51 wins based on the rest of the regular season total, which that would put the Cavaliers as the fifth best team in the NBA, right there neck and neck with Memphis, 5-6, however you want to look at it. And if that's the case, the Cavaliers would finish as the fourth seed with home court advantage over the Knicks, if things bore out the way that they expect them to. So a very favorable schedule for the Cavs, but certainly you cannot take games like the one against the Pistons for granted. And I think in the beginning of this game, there might have been a few people a little bit worried with how the Cavs came out of the game. Right off the bat, we saw a team without Cade Cunningham, without Boyan Bogdanovich, without Isaiah Stewart, without Jalen Duren, not even Alec Burks. They were missing five guys, four of which are starters. So for them to come out of the gates, Marvin Bagley, right in the first few possessions, a couple early offensive rebounds, had me a bit worried. But the Cavs dialed in. They ripped off a 10-0 run to take a 14-6 lead. And I thought, all right, this game is going to be over super early. It wasn't. They went into the second quarter up by just three points. When I started to feel comfortable was essentially about midway through the second quarter. A little after six minutes had elapsed in the second quarter. The Cavaliers brought Lamar Stevens in. And right out of the gate, his aggression, a couple big defensive plays, and a couple huge defensive lapses by James Wiseman. I... I shouldn't start on a negative. I probably shouldn't start on a negative about an opponent. But let's just point out the elephant in the room. We have had many discussions on this podcast and others about Isaac Okoro. And is he living up to expectations? He was a fifth overall pick and he's not performing like that. Well, what I would say that you can take away from the game against the Pistons is that things could always be worse. Because if there was a poster child, for failing to live up to draft position, James Wiseman would be that man. Just in the first quarter alone, he turned the ball over multiple times. Unforgivable turnovers. I mean, we saw him get his pocket picked on a defensive rebound by Jared Allen from behind. We saw him dribble into traffic, slip, fall over, turning the ball over, which led to an Isaiah, or excuse me, led to an Isaac Okoro run out and fumble a ball out of bounds on a lob pass over the top. I could go through them all individually. The point is, he had more turnovers at halftime than he had points. He had four turnovers in the first half to just three points. He had so many plays. Like the Lamar Stevens dunk that came off of a full court run, that was Wiseman's assignment. He blew it. He needed to get back on that. Multiple times, we saw plays that were finished on the inside because Wiseman did not recover quick enough. There was a play where Darius Garland pulled in an offensive rebound and Isaac Okoro snuck in from the opposite three-point line, and he found him under the basket for a reverse layup. That is one of those situations where James Wiseman should have been more aware of being able to recover to the rim, and he didn't get a contest on that shot at all. He was objectively bad. He's not an aggressive offensive player. There's a lot of push hooks 
little fadeaway. He's okay on the glass, but he's slow laterally. He's bad defensively. And he made just some bad, bad decisions last night. Now, I thought Bagley was good. I thought you saw the difference between the two players. It couldn't have been any more stark. Bagley was aggressive. He went right at two bigs on the Cavs, Mobley and Allen, who clearly are intimidating defensive presences. But he didn't back down because I think he realized, well, who are the Pistons going to turn to in this situation? And he was rewarded because he led the team in free throw attempts, got to the line six times. He was very efficient considering the obstacles he was up against, finished with 20 points, 13 rebounds. Like I said, had a couple early offensive rebounds. I thought he did what he could to set the tone, but he and Hamadou Diallo were night and day better than James Wiseman in terms of how they played. And it's not about skill set at this point. He doesn't play an intelligent brand of basketball. In fact, he was the least productive piston on the court yesterday, a minus 26 when he was out there on the floor. Now, Hamadou Diallo, I thought he was exceptional. He was my favorite piston in terms of performance yesterday. While Bagley did have a better stat line overall, as I pointed out, I thought some of Bagley's decisions in the shots that he forced up, he might have got bailed out by getting to the line, but I wouldn't have put up some of those looks with Mobley and Allen draped on him. And he did. And to his credit, he converted. But Diallo, his baskets were in motion. He used his physicality where he could. He contested where he could. I, I thought his 14 and 7, that marked eight consecutive games in which he scored in double digits. And he's averaging 17 this month. And it was arguably more impressive than Marvin Bagley. Now, the third member of the Pistons, who I thought played exceptionally physical, despite it producing no results, was Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey looked like he was trying to prove something against Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, and Isaac Okoro last night. But with Okoro drawing the primary defensive matchup against Ivey, he did little to nothing. He was very inefficient. Shot four for 14 from the floor. Led the team in shot attempts. Also led the team in turnovers with five. And this was a Pistons team which turned the ball over a ton last night. 23 turnovers on the game, and 13 of those came in the first half. So the Cavs, surprisingly enough, after that first quarter, where they scored 11 points after turnovers, for the rest of the game, they had just six points off of turnovers. And they lost that battle. The Pistons scored 28 points off of turnovers, despite the fact that the Cavaliers only turned the ball over 11 times. That was a surprising thing to look at in the aftermath of the game, because at least early in the game, it felt like the story in the first quarter was we couldn't finish around the rim. Mobley just two for nine in the first half and missed a lot of bunnies, but contributed in other ways. And they could not stop themselves from turning the ball over because the Cavaliers finished the game with just a load of blocks and steals, eight blocks, 14 steals. 14 steals is the most the Cavs have recorded in a game this season. Their previous high was 12 against the Grizzlies and the Rockets at the end of January. As far as blocks go, eight would put them second on the season. And the only game in which they've had more blocks, well, take a guess when that was. That was November when they recorded 13 blocks against the Pistons in that victory. So the Pistons giving them their two most prolific games on the defensive end protecting the rim this season. And I know, 8 seems like a distant second to 13, but that's largely because Evan Mobley recorded 8 blocks himself the first matchup. 
I, I've talked about the Pistons players enough. Let's get to what we saw from the Cavs. The first thing to point out, I think, is that while Evan Mobley didn't have his most efficient game from the floor, when you got to the end of the game, look at that stat line. He filled it up across the board. He ended up shooting 50%, and a lot of that was due to what I pointed out earlier, an exceptional third quarter of Cleveland Cavalier basketball. In the third quarter, we got 18 points from Darius Garland and Evan Mobley on a perfect 8-for-8 from the floor. Those two players turned it on in a period in which the Cavs went 16-22, a blistering 73% from the floor with seven, seven of those 14 steals coming into third period, and only two turnovers. That was the period where they blew it open. And that's not some shocking revelation. The Cavs took what was a nine-point lead at halftime, and it was a 29-point lead going into the fourth quarter. So, yeah, that's when the game got away from them. But that is when Evan Mobley took what was a fairly disappointing first half in which he was only two for nine, had five points, and... He started to put the ball in the bucket, and when the game was over, he finished with a very respectable 16 points, 11 rebounds, 6 assists, 4 blocks. Now those blocks, he should be sending a thank you card to James Wiseman for helping him pad those stats, but it continued a stretch of dominance by these Cavalier bigs in these games. Coming into last night, Evan Mobley, in the three games against these Pistons, was averaging 17 points, 10 rebounds, and 3 blocks, and he kept that streak alive. So now we have him at 13 blocks over the course of four games against the Pistons, just an interior clinic every time we face this team. Now, what else did we see? Well, we saw J.B. Bickerstaff expand the rotation. And I think we kind of expected that in this game against the Pistons because certainly the time to be able to experiment with rotations is in a game in which you're probably going to lead by a lot. And the starters got very short run. Not a single starter played more than 30 minutes. Evan Mobley just shy of that, but most of them got yanked around 25 minutes apiece. Isaac Okoro played less than 20 minutes last night, so we got extended run for Lamar Stevens got 20 minutes. Osmond got nearly 20 minutes, 18 and a half. And while I wouldn't say anyone blew me away off the bench, I would say a couple of things. Lamar Stevens was not in the first salvo of bench guys. We saw our typical three, Rubio, Wade, and Levert come in in the first quarter. We saw Osmond come in at the very end of the first quarter. And then Stevens came in at a point where somehow the Pistons were still hanging around. It was 37 to 37. And from that point, Stevens checked in and the Cavaliers went on a 17-8 run to take that nine-point lead into halftime. It was big plays from him. He, he made an impressive dunk where he just bowled through Jay Nivey flushed it, hung on the rim a little, and he had another where he got a run out in transition after Mobley had blocked a shot, which led to a dunk as Wiseman didn't get back to cover him. He was wide open there. So at the end of the game, you look at Lamar Stevens, eight and five isn't going to blow you away, but the point at which it happened and the energy with which he played, I thought Stevens was the most impressive player off the bench for me. It was productive minutes. It was good defense. And couple other guys on the bench got a chance to shine, albeit in garbage time. Danny Green. How about that? Two three-pointers in garbage minutes. You got to feel good about that. And it's great to see how quickly he can get his shot off. Now, Sam Merrill, the 10-day contract sign-up. I said going into last night, I know there were people who were 
clamoring for him to get minutes because he's touted as a shooter. But first thing I would do is say, yes, I'm sure he has promise as a three-point shooter, but let's not get carried away here. He's made 28 three-pointers in his entire NBA career, which has spanned a few seasons here, the Bucks and the Grizzlies and the, the Kings before he got cut there. And then now he's with us, and I hope he succeeds. But I would say I think we need to mute our expectations just a bit in the sense that we're clamoring for floor spacing so that our first unit operates effectively. I wouldn't expect he's on the floor hardly at all with the first unit. He's not big enough to really occupy a wing position. I would say what you need to hope for is that he has chemistry alongside Wade and Rubio because otherwise, I would say pump the brakes just a little bit. Danny Green is likely going to be the guy who if we force feed anyone into the rotation because of their three-point shooting prowess, it's going to be the vet that we brought in here who had the ability to go to many other places. And I expect that he was not told, well, we envisioned signing you and then a week later deciding to play a G League call-up over you. I wouldn't expect that. So I'm as excited as the next guy about development. But if we've seen anything from J.B. Bickerstaff, it's that defense is what is going to keep you on the court. And what we saw from Stevens tonight should make you realize that he's not just trying to crack the top nine. He's trying to crack the top 10, 11, because Osman and Stevens are still ahead of him, and Green, for that matter. And as it speaks to JB, I'm happy he expanded his rotation a little bit in this game. Now's a game you can do it. Osman can't even get consistent minutes in the rotation in these more competitive games. So for us to think that a guy who has considerably more to offer, because Osman can run and transition, and a lot bigger frame, I'd hold off throwing a party for Sam Merrill, making his first basket in that impressive cut to the rim. I was more happy to see Danny Green knocking a couple of shots, and hopefully as he gets his legs under him, we can see some more minutes from him. But in general, the story for me off the bench tonight was the return of Lamar Stevens. Now the big story for the evening in the second half, as the Cavs pulled away, had nothing to do with the play on the court. It had to do with Donovan Mitchell, who exited the game as the Cavaliers led by 21 points with three and a half minutes left in the third quarter, holding his hand. And the replay showed that he sort of jammed his hands together. And one of the fingers was, it looked ugly. It certainly looked like it could have been a dislocation or maybe even a broken finger. It in fact turned out that it was a sprained finger. So a sigh of relief as the reports came back that he was probable to return. Now he didn't have to because the Cavs were up by 29 points when Donovan Mitchell came back out of the locker room. So he was shut down for the evening. That would have been a tough pill to swallow heading into a week in which we see the Heat a couple of times and the Boston Celtics tomorrow to be without Donovan Mitchell. So certainly a good sign that it looks like he will play against the Celtics. But quite a game for him in which he was blazing hot in the first quarter with 15 points and then scored just five the rest of the way before exiting the game. Fortunately, We didn't need him to do what we needed him to do to just make that game look even remotely competitive in Boston, where he exploded in the second half. Now, there's one more story I need to touch on on this episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. And I'll be honest, it's a large part of the reason I decided to pod today because this Celtics game is going to be upon us before we know it. But there is something from last week's Celtics game which needs to be addressed. In the aftermath of that game, one of the negatives was that Jared Allen had a relative no-show. One of his worst games of the season scored just five points, seven rebounds, a few steals, a couple blocks, 
only took five shot attempts. And in a game where we were starved for offense outside of Donovan Mitchell, yes, Jared Allen did not provide that. But to see people suggest, after losing to one of the best teams in the NBA, who has one of the best front court defenders in the NBA in Robert Williams III, I've seen enough. This is as far as we go as a team and a core, so it's time to blow up this core, and therefore, we need to move Jared Allen. I was disgusted. Now I realize that doesn't speak for the majority of the rational Cavalier fandom, certainly not the intelligent listeners of the Fear the Fro podcast, but there are times where I think public shaming is appropriate. I've seen a lot of people focused on public shaming John Morant and the Grizzlies and John Morant's family. I'll be honest, I'm a little disappointed that those resources haven't been spent criticizing anyone and everyone who suggests that Jared Allen should be traded because, God forbid, he didn't do 15-10 and 10 against one of the best teams in the NBA. I wish John Morant would shoot those people. Okay, maybe, maybe I wouldn't go that far, but I would just say that I would understand. And I'm not just saying this because I named my podcast after the man. I haven't even got to merchandise Fear the Fro yet. And you're already trying to advocate to trade him. I'm not just saying it because of that. But have some goddamn perspective. Look at this matchup against the Pistons. If ever you needed to see the value of great big men, just look at Allen going into that Pistons game. He had been averaging 22 points and 12 rebounds against the Pistons in the first three games this season. Teams kill for just one dominant big man. And we have two guys out there who can score efficiently, who can defend incredibly, who are switchable. And you want to blow it up for this hypothetical, oh, let's get a wing guy who can do some scoring. You might want to ignore the games in which Jared Allen drops 20 points, but I don't. He's done it 16 times this season. Guess what the record is? For the Cavs, 14 and 2. Now put that in perspective. Do you know how many times Jared Allen has scored less than 10 points this season? 13. So he's had more games with over 20 points this year than he has had with under 10 points. Last month, 18 points, 11 rebounds, 72% from the floor, 82% from the line, and he averaged over four offensive rebounds a game. That is not, quote, easily replaceable. You don't throw someone away after one bad game. Do you know how many times this season Jared Allen has scored in the single digits? Well, I'll tell you this, didn't do it a single time last month in the month of February. The last time he did it was at the end of January in that game against the Golden State Warriors in which he scored just eight points and their second unit G League team destroyed us. This is a man who, like clockwork, gives us double-double numbers. Elite defense, switchable defense, a great cleanup man, one that thrives alongside two guys who can get the ball up in alley-oops and drive to the rim in Mitchell and Garland. And there's people who want to trade him because, God forbid, he had one dud. And every time I see someone say, well, he can't score from more than five feet away from the rim. And that, that's easier to replace than it is to find a good wing. Maybe that's true. But how many seven-foot centers do you see Euro-stepping their way into transition dunks like he just did against the Pistons. Even if I agreed with that, which I don't, the fact is, we have Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. And you want to take away a guy who can't be abandoned under the rim, which would allow people to clog the lane even more against the guys who we've tasked with doing our scoring. 
Why are you looking at the amount of points Jared Allen scores and saying that's indicative of whether or not he's valuable to our team moving forward? It's a stupid way to assess basketball. We don't have three-point shooting. I admit that. Not reliable ones anyway. But that's a fuckload easier to address in the offseason than it is to take one of the youngest, most effective centers in the NBA out of the mix because, well, you know, he makes some money and I just, I'm, I'm upset because of a bad game on March 1st. How do we have people in our own fan base who can listen to people say, well, Jalen Green's better than Evan Mobley because he scores more and realize what a load of horseshit that is, but then say, okay, well, we've got to trade Jared Allen because he only scored five points against the Celtics. What more would this man have to do this season before you stop looking at him as outside of the untradeable core of our team? It's not three guys. It's not Garland, Mitchell, and Mobley. Jared Allen is every bit as important to this team as Evan Mobley is at this present point. I don't care what anyone says. We built this system around the concept of having both those bigs there. And I know there's a part of the fan base who thinks, well, Mobley will eventually become somebody who can be played out there individually at center, and he he won't need the support of Jared Allen. I don't want to test that. I don't want to test that for this hypothetical help that a wing will give. Do you not remember what OG Ananobi just did against the Cavs? Did he look particularly valuable there? And that's a guy who I'm told is just the ideal 3 and D wing. He completely no-showed. I wonder if his fan base completely turned on him the way some of you fro backstabbing Benedict Arnold did. I did it again. Third one in a row I had to bleep. But you know what? You deserved it if you thought Jared Allen should be traded. That's enough for this podcast. I've said my piece. I just had to get that off my chest. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Or if you're catching this pod on Monday, I hope you enjoy it on the commute to work, at the gym, wherever you may listen. Thank you to each and every one of you who have subscribed, who have left a review. Those of you who have left ratings, there have been some good ones on the Apple Store lately. I love seeing what you guys write and the things that appeal to you. So thank you. We'll be back with more. Certainly a big week of Cavalier basketball and a lot on deck for the Fear the Fro podcast. Have a great rest of the day. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.